Hi, everybody. Hi. It's not as loud as inside, but that's okay. Um, before I get started, um, I want to just share with you something that happened to me earlier today in a good way. Um, I was uh, trimming the grass on my driveway, <clears throat> kind of just thinking about what it means to preach God's word to people you love and care about. And um, we get emotional, so forgive me. But uh, growing up, a lot of you know, I wasn't raised in a leading home. And uh, I'm just really grateful to be able to uh, open God's word with my family here tonight. So thankful for all of you. And we're back. Okay. Um, super happy to see everyone. Uh, I'm completely stable and normal and uh, not starved for human enjoyment at all. But if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 4. Uh, so go ahead, open it up, launch your Bible, and scroll to First Peter chapter 4 if you don't mind. We're going to be in verses 12 through 19 tonight. So First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, please. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved, oh, love you guys. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, although as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I am so glad to be here with this family tonight. Um, it is just really remarkable uh, and pretty unbelievable the way that you find all of these different people who can disagree on so many things, even important things. But when we agree on the most important thing, that is Christ, we are united to you and with one another. And so I'm thankful for the unity I have with these brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, I appreciate the opportunity to share your word. There is no greater joy than to present the word of God before a lost world, um, but to a saved people. I pray that your word would go forth in power. I pray that you would be the one who speaks to us. Let your Holy Spirit dwell among us tonight. Let your spirit speak through me so that it's God who is working out these things instead of me. Um, I pray that you would make me humble. I pray that you would uh, help people to hear with their hearts that they would turn and look at Christ and see he was beautiful. Thank you for this time. Thank you for this word. Thank you for this people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So gold's a pretty fascinating thing, isn't it? Thank you. Uh, it's the number 79 medal on our periodic table, and it's been a prize medal throughout most of history, as you do when you have nothing else to do in quarantine, not that I haven't had other things to do. But I was reading a piece on the BBC about um, how, how and why gold has kind of always been used to signify wealth throughout a lot of different cultures. Uh, and ultimately, it's, uh, gold is pretty interesting because gold itself doesn't have any uh, drawbacks that you might find in other metals. So you can melt it down, you can turn it into jewelry or coins, it doesn't really interact with other elements all that much, so your money's not going to like explode on you while it's in your pocket, which is pretty good. Uh, it doesn't rust, it's stable, it doesn't melt um, when it's subjected to heat, unless it's like very intense heat, so it's actually really good. So you all have gold in your phones and stuff like that, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's also extremely rare, so it's hard to counterfeit uh, gold. Actually, I was reading this thing, and it said if you took all of the gold and all of the phones and all of the jewelry and all that's left in the world, uh, most scientists surmise that if you took all the gold and combined it, you would get a big cube that's about 60 feet around. So 60 feet uh, lengthwise, upwards, uh, all the different dimensions that I can't think of because I'm just rambling. But, um, but that's, I mean, that's pretty small. Like, you have a cube that fits on a football field of gold. That's all the gold in the whole world in this big cube, which is pretty interesting. So um, it made me question, well, how did gold get here? And um, I'm not saying that like creation is a cop-out answer, but I'm kind of more interested in like what scientists might believe too. So like God definitely put gold in our earth for us to enjoy. Uh, so no one knows for sure in the scientific community, but their theory is that there was a huge collision of neutron stars and the rapid capture of that energy produced gold. Isn't that cool? So interesting. Um, now, whether you believe that theory or you're just going to stick with God put it there, and that's all that we need to know about it, which is also we can kind of all agree that some kind of huge, um, almost catastrophic event had to occur for gold to show up in the world that we live in, which is pretty amazing. And uh, kind of more interesting than that is that gold uh, uh, in its own form that you first get it in is not pure at all. It's like filled with all kinds of junk and nastiness and stuff like that. Uh, so when it's first attracted to the earth, it needs to be purified. So today, the most common way that we purify gold is we use a combination of nitric and hydrochloric acid and we burn away unwanted substances. Uh, previously, in uh, days of yore, uh, the ancient world gold was used uh, using really high levels of heat and also soil that had high levels of salt in it. And you would combine that and that would slowly dissolve the impurities out of gold and you would get the gold substance that everyone was interested in. When the Bible talks about faith, and uh, the way that we trust in the Lord, it often refers to our faith as precious as gold. Even going so far to say that the faith of the believer is actually more valuable than gold. God also tells us in our word that our faith, like gold, needs to be purified, specifically in Malachi 3. God points out that our faith is like gold, but God is the one who refines it. And just like today, impurities are burned away from that gold, so that the pure good stuff, that gold, that pure faith, can rise up. Our faith, even today, is a gift from God, but the fact remains that we, as people, are weak. We are jars of clay, and that's why people in the Bible say, I do believe, but help my unbelief. And in love and grace and tenderness, God sees that, what is best for us to have this strong faith that we want and God wants for us, what's best for that 
is to burn away those impurities. Much of Peter's letter that we've been reading and studying over the last few weeks is focused on this topic. So a lot of this passage might not sound new to us, but it's God's word and entirely profitable. And so it, the important lesson, the important takeaway tonight, I'm going to give it to you up front. While it's a hard lesson to learn, the primary method that God uses to grow the faith in his people is suffering. The primary way God grows faith in his people is through suffering. So as Christians living faithfully to God in a broken world, it is entirely appropriate for us to expect suffering and trial and pain. John Calvin, um, well, sorry, before I say that, I just want to say that like the true test of where we are in our relationship to the Lord is not whether or not we go through trials, but how we respond to those trials. We respond in faith or in a different way. If you were a cup and a cup and something bumps you and what flows out of that cup, what spills over the edge? Is it, you know, like the, is it a faith that spills out or is it some kind of other substance that's going to fall out of that cup? John Calvin says, for true doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. Doctrine is rightly received when it takes possession of the entire soul and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. What we believe about God is on full display during times of suffering. What we believe about God is on full display during times of suffering. So it's valuable for us to know that suffering is not only coming, but how to respond in those moments when suffering comes. And thankfully, this is what this passage is sort of teaching us. We can have four actions. He can give us four different actions that we can respond with when suffering comes. Action number one is anticipate. I'm cheating a little bit because this happens before the suffering comes, but anticipate. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I don't know if you guys are like this. I've come to dread any text message from my parents that says, can you call me when you get a chance? Okay, I hear some laughs. So if other people are with me, right? Just like, can you call me? Or do you have time to talk in a little bit? Just when you have a moment. They, like, they're not saying no rush because there is kind of a rush, but like they don't want to alarm you over text. And now I'm hyperventilating. But, you know, I've kind of found over the years that the best way for me to respond to this text isn't to like drop everything and just go for it, but it's actually kind of let it to marinate in my inbox, which is maybe not nice to them. But I've noticed that like when I let it sit there for a little bit and I get some distance from like what's going on, I have time to pray, I have time to like anticipate what's going to go on, I have time to think about, all right, so I know what my parents are kind of dealing with in lives right now. You know, they're, they're in their late 60s, 70s, all right, health things are starting to come up more and more. I have time to start stopping, thinking about, anticipate what's going to come. And I realize that I actually respond a lot better when I have time to ask God for wisdom, love, patience, all of these things that I need, especially when you're talking with unbelievers who might be facing some kind of a crisis. Um, this is the kind of anticipation I think Paul or Peter is beckoning God's people to have. Right? He's just saying, don't be surprised. Bad things are coming for you. Be ready for it. You know, when you're in the midst of pain and you look at the sky and you sometimes like, how could have anyone have seen this coming? Like, Peter saw this coming like 2,000 years ago and wrote it in a book. And God preserved that book for God's people. And now God's people can know pain is coming. And you can say, I'm ready for it. I'm anticipating it because that's what God said to do. Christians... 
suffering is coming for you like a freight train. Like, that's just kind of what the Bible says. And suffering, full on, is not a hindrance to the Christian life. It's a definitive characteristic. Suffering is not a hindrance to the Christian life. It's a definitive characteristic. The words God used in this passage aren't really meant to scare us. He's not saying, all right, bad things are coming, so you better, you know, hold up, cover your heads, uh, hide in a corner. He's simply saying, get ready. Hard, difficult things are coming. He's giving us a chance to know what's coming, and in so doing, we get a chance to practice our holiness. It is the will of God for us to understand that trials, difficulty, suffering, and intense pain will come, into, or will come into our lives. And by illuminating this fact beforehand, he gives us the opportunity to practice suffering well. Pain will come, and when it does, it is good and right to hurt and grieve. However, Peter is saying, be ready for that. Peter is saying, don't think your situation, though it matters deeply to you and therefore matters deeply to God, is not strange, it is not crazy, and it is not only you. It is God's plan for us, and he has told us it will come. What is best for us, then, is to take God at his word. Practice holiness, then. As we anticipate pain coming into our lives, keep making spiritual deposits into a personal bank of faith so that when lean, hard, and desperate spiritual times hit, you have a firm faith to make withdrawals from. What does that look like? Keep reading and memorizing God's word. Keep seeking the Lord in prayer. Continue to do the work of the ministry, to grow in your understanding of who God is. Keep meeting with fellow believers for the encouragement of your faith. Pursue the Lord as hard as you can now, so that when suffering hits, you will know where to find him. Anticipate suffering. Action number two, rejoice. Action number two is rejoice. Look with me at verse 13. It says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So to me, this verse starts off a little weird, right? It says, rejoice in Christ's sufferings? Like, really? Like, Jesus didn't seem terribly joyful in his moments of suffering, right? Like, there are words used to describe Jesus on the cross where it uses words like anguish. Like, when I think rejoice and anguish, they don't usually go together unless it's like, rejoice is the opposite of... But, here we are. Um, I was kind of going through a bit of a rough patch uh, last fall, early winter, and um, God providentially put a lot of resources in my life in addition to the Bible, which ended up being really helpful. Uh, and I'm really grateful that God did that at the time. Um, and without quoting something specific, the idea of rejoicing and suffering started to make a lot more sense. In suffering, we can agree suffering hurts. It do. Like, that's just kind of how suffering is. It's the nature of suffering. And we're not told to deny that. Like, how am I going to rejoice in this pain? Like, I don't know about you. I go through a lot of guilt things in my mind when bad things happen. So I'm like, all right, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? Who did I hurt? Why did I hurt them? How did, and I, I, I go through this whole thing, and it's kind of paralyzing um, of all of these different things. So 
there's this one idea that really made it through all of these resources when I was going through all of this stuff. And it's what finally helped me. I hope it helps you. It's not the suffering that brings joy. Do not rejoice that the suffering is like feeling bad, because that's odd. Do, do not rejoice. It's not the suffering itself that brings joy. It's the one who suffers with you and suffered for you is where we find our joy. Our joy is not specifically found in the suffering. Our joy is found in the one who suffered for and suffers now with us. So, we set our eyes so firmly on Christ, with our prize being Jesus himself, that anything else in this world just seems so utterly lacking. If you need advice on how to rejoice in suffering, the answer isn't make the most of it. The answer is found in Hebrews 12, too. To spend your waking hours, quote, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We rejoice in our suffering like Jesus, enduring what is upon us for the joy of what lies ahead. Romans 8.29 tells us that God's goal for us is to be conformed to the image of his Son. Jesus' ministry on earth is often marked by mocking, scoffing, persecution, rejection, and collusion against him. If it happened to God's own Son, it most certainly will happen to us. If God wants us to look like Jesus, we must want that for ourselves. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to experience things like Jesus did. And there will be much in this life to endure. And we endure not by setting our hopes on this world, not by the thing fact that things might get better someday. We endure by setting our hope on the fact that heaven is getting closer. Peter goes on. He says that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Simply put, our hope is not in or of or about this world. We are becoming more and more like Jesus so that when we see his perfect glory, whether we die or he returns first, we'll be so ready and so happy to see him because we've spent our whole lives pursuing and enjoying him more. We see something in theology called our uh, union with Christ, our oneness with Christ. We see in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. Our suffering for Christ in the name of Christ and by the name of Christ confirms, not questions, this suffering confirms our belonging to Christ. So when you hurt, you can say, I'm God's. He's mine. We rejoice in suffering, not because the suffering itself is any kind of pleasure, but because Christ meets us and joins us in our suffering and promises to walk with us and welcome us into his glory on the other side. Action number three. Glorify. Third action, glorify. Um, some of you know this about me specifically, or if you uh, have ever presented yourself at the youth group, you probably know this about me. I have a really odd affinity for uh, phones. Um, and before that, it was MP3 players, for those of you who remember those. Um, I, so I moved to North Carolina in 2014. Um, I'm on my 16th phone since then. 
I receive your judgment and I welcome it. For whatever reason, I've always been really interested in this kind of technology. And I don't really wait till things break or run out or stop working. I'm just like, ooh, this one's shiny too. And I just buy it and um, things are where they are. I'm not in debt, it's fine. But um, that's kind of the life that I lead. Um, we can talk about it later if you really feel like we need to hash something out. Uh, but the way that this kind of plays most prominently out these days. It used to be really interesting because everyone was doing their different things and it was like a new technology. People were like throwing stuff against the wall and see what stuck. Uh, but now, basically, the most interesting thing is kind of the argument of Android versus iPhone, right? Um, I've had this conversation with some of my youth group students. Some of them have iPhones, some of the youth group leaders know better. But um, here we are. I'm an Android user and I always have been. I ditched my iPod Touch in 2013 for the original Samsung Galaxy S, which is probably setting something on fire right now. Um, but as a major phone enthusiast, I can tell you a lot about Android and iPhones, uh, definitely more about Android. But um, as a fan, I can tell you what's really great about it, but also as a fan, I can tell you what's really, really bad about it, right? Like, that's kind of how things go. When people, um, I mean, you guys are here early, JD and I were talking about um, football game, Ravens fan, and we were talking about, you know, football stuff, and Ravens play a big game tomorrow, and he was like, I think they're going to win. I'm like, really? Because I know every single thing that's wrong about the Baltimore Ravens. I can tell you exactly why and why how many points they're going to lose, statistically speaking. Um, but when you're... When I, the, the fact is, especially when it goes back to phones, um, I really enjoy this arbitrary thing. I will go to great lengths to implore others to share in this thing that gives me enjoyment, regardless of how much frustration or annoyance it's caused me over the years. When a satisfaction and enjoyment of something is so unwaveringly strong, all other pain and suffering that accompanies it seems pretty trivial. When a satisfaction and enjoyment of something is so unwaveringly strong, all other pain and suffering that accompanies it seems trivial. This is the point Peter is making in verse 16. Go back a little bit. Let's look at verse 15. He has a bit of a qualifier. He says, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Um, don't sin. And when you, step, when you suffer because of you were a sin, you kind of brought that on yourself. But, moving forward... There's a way for a Christian to suffer that is not in the will of God, and it's because of our own sin, right? Like, maybe none of you here have murdered someone, but you maybe hated someone or been really angry with them without choosing to forgive them. Jesus says that's murder. Maybe you haven't stolen things, but you've stolen time from your employer, or you've worked extra hard to take someone else's enjoyment away. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself an evildoer. But a lot of your actions at work, at home, at school, or with your family deserve punishment more than they deserve praise. Maybe you're simply a meddler. Maybe you gossip. You involve yourself constantly in other people's affairs. Maybe you're really, really, really good at judging the speck in other people's eyes, and you ignore that log stuck in your own. These actions, Peter says, result in pain and suffering, relational trauma, physical pain from anxiety, guilt, shame. All of these things could... Not always, but could be a result of the type of behavior that Peter is here warning against. These types of suffering are not in line with God's will and God's design for suffering. Sometimes we go through pain and it's our own fault. But Peter goes on in verse 16. He says, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. We 
talked about this. Jesus or God's goal for our lives is to make us more like Jesus. Jesus' life is marked by pain and suffering, so we can expect for suffering to also be a part of our lives. When those moments come, says Peter, where suffering comes, keep the faith in Christ. Do not be ashamed that you're suffering, but instead glorify God. We can rejoice then that God has counted you as one of his dear children, not deserving but worthy of suffering. Not deserving of suffering, but worthy of it. Acts 5 tells about a time where Peter lived, what he's talking about. This is much earlier in Peter's ministry, not too long after Jesus had risen from the grave, showed himself to many people, and said it in heaven. Um, Peter's been anointed with the Holy Spirit during Pentecost. He's out there sharing his and sharing the good news of Christ with other people. And um, they're he and the other apostles are brought to the religious authorities who are trying to figure out what they're supposed to do. And so they're like, I don't want to do with these guys. So they whip them and kind of send them on the right. And be like, you know, we're going to hurt you. You're in pain now. Go out. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Please. Um, so this is what Acts chapter 5, verse 41 says about how Peter and the rest of the apostles left that meeting. They said they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were overjoyed because they knew what suffering meant. They had a good theology of suffering. They recognized they were being sanctified by God. They knew the presence of suffering in their lives as they followed Jesus. It wasn't a mark of them doing something wrong, but it was instead that they were doing something right and that they were wholly beloved by God. As a result, they praised God. They glorified Him regardless of pain because of God's exceeding goodness. That is the goal of all the suffering and pain that we experience. One commentator puts it like this. He says, the Christian who loves the Lord rejoices that he may suffer for the sake of the one who suffered for him. Suffering in the name of Christ is not an accident. It's not a punishment. It's not because God is ignoring you. It is an opportunity to reward you with a deeper and more intimate relationship with the one who saved you. So we glorify God in our response to suffering. Well-known um, quote by Pastor Charles Spurgeon says it really well. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So let your opportunity, let your suffering be an opportunity to see God's glory revealed and enjoy Him more. Action number four, trust. Back to the Baltimore Ravens. They have this term they throw around in their locker room. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to say it like they do because I am not cool. Uh, but it's kind of starting to seep see out in mainstream culture, which is really weird for anything from Baltimore to do besides, like, the wire, which is... Um, being a Baltimore guy, it's very important to me that you know about good things coming out of Baltimore. So they actually started um, developing this term called trust. Anyone heard trust? Yeah. No? No? It's okay. It hasn't seeped out in mainstream culture, and I'm very nerdy, and you can... Just send me an email later, it's fine. Um, anyways, trust. Uh, what's funny is trying to define this thing. It's now big trust because there's a lot of trust in big. Um, what's funny is trying to define this thing called trust, right? There's an article on the Baltimore Ravens website where uh, one of their beat writers actually just went around the walk locker room and he's like, guys, what does this mean? Like, you keep saying it and no one knows what you're talking about and how I know what they feel like. Um, so he, he, my favorite answer is their kicker uh, because, you know, 
person like me likes tears. Um, his name is Justin Tucker, and he's you know he's an opera singing football kicker. And uh, he he says this. He says, "quote Honestly, I don't know. I'm just trying to fit in. I'm 30, so I'm like the old dad on this team. I just want to be cool." And I relate to that on like a very deep, profound spiritual level. Um, other people on the team, when they're pressed on it, they kind of summarize it as being a word trust, but with like kind of a deeper emotional side to it. Uh, it's more than the word trust. It, it takes the T off and replaces it with S. So it's T-R-U-S-S if you're wanting to Google it later. Um, one player explained it. I thought this was good. One player explained it by saying, I don't think you can put one definition on it. It's a feeling. It's a movement. It's not just about trusting someone. It's about big trusting someone. When you have full-fledged faith in that person, more than even they understand. And the, the primary theologian of the locker room, running back Mark Ingram, summarized it pretty well. I thought he said, um, he says this, he says, it's love, man, it's love. Team sports have this kind of uncanny ability to develop a sense of camaraderie and uh, fellowship that not many other outlets are able to replicate, especially in a game like American football where you're trusting 10 other people to all do their job very well at the same time so that you can do your job really well at the same time. There's a lot of faith being placed in other people. It's faith. It's trust. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. And that is his final action. Trust. Trust. God. Peter highlights this idea of judgment purification for all things come from God and starts actually with his own people before he judges anyone else. Verse 17 and 18, he says, For it is the time of judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We've discussed that suffering is going to come into the life of the believer, but we have explained that there's a hope on the other side for us. And even with that hope, it's still difficult, right? Anyone who's gone through any amount of suffering knows that even with a, an unwavering, perfect hope on the other side, suffering hurts and can be difficult. So what about those who don't have hope in Christ? C.S. Lewis once said that for the believer, uh, life on this earth is the furthest from heaven will ever be, but for the unbeliever, the world is the closest to heaven they'll ever get. Friends, can you imagine if this world was the closest to heaven you'd ever get? This world is still beautiful, absolutely, but it is likewise so, so broken. There is so much bitterness, hate, anger, tribalism, lying, deception, hypocrisy, and death. We cannot allow this world, populated by the people made in the image of a perfect and almighty God, to not have the chance for something greater. Peter says, we are just barely saved, or scarcely saved, not because Jesus' work wasn't enough to completely save us, but because our sin, our rebellion towards God, our selfishness, our brokenness, our faults, and our own unworthiness, our uncleanness was so bad 
that there was only one possible way for God to save us. God did not save us through politicians or political parties or systems. God did not save us through a government. God did not save us through social justice movements. God did not save us by giving us laws to follow, things to do, boxes to check. God saved us by coming in the flesh, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. He lived a perfect, sinless life, one we could never hope to live. God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took all the sins for all time for himself on the cross and paid the penalty that our sin demanded that whoever believes in what Jesus said shall have eternal right life. Then God raised Jesus from the dead back to life on the third day, demonstrating once and for all that God has achieved victory over death, that Christ is greater than anything this world can throw at him, and that God's promises are worthy of our trust. Romans 8.32, in light of this glorious reality, asks a very simple question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave us the best gift. So what do we have to lose? Um, I don't know where people are emotionally tonight, spiritually tonight, um, but sometimes there are just little things that stick with people, and maybe I feel like someone could have this stick with them. According to God, you are worth dying for. This God who gave up all hold it up for you wants one thing from us and he wants our trust verse 19 therefore let those who suffer according to god's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good let those who suffer according to god's will christians you will suffer and it will be according to god's will and you're going to need to learn how to trust him your suffering and pain is no accident. It is not unseen. It is not unheard by our faithful God. One of the greatest comforts in suffering is the good and right truth that it is the will of God and that he sees and abides with us in our pain. Wayne Grudem says this. He says, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than this. It is God's good and perfect will. For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. In all of it, we are not alone, but can depend on the care of a faithful creator. We can rejoice in the fellowship of a savior who has also suffered. We can exult in the constant presence of a spirit of glory who delights to rest upon us. So as the suffering and pain come, as we know it is from God for our good and his glory, Peter says we respond to it by entrusting our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. One commentary says that the word entrust in Greek implies as a giving over for safekeeping. It is a perfect reminiscence of what Jesus said when he hung on the cross and he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust it. I give it to you for safekeeping.
So as we deal with pain, we trust God. And what does that look like? It means getting down on your knees in prayer before God with the weight of the world on your shoulders and admitting, God, I do not understand. But I know all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. It won't make sense what you're going through. In fact, it probably won't make sense more times than it does. But just because you don't know what's going on, you can trust entirely in the one who does. I know my God has a whole world in his hands. And like our great theologian running back, Mark Ingram, when he runs hard for the Ravens, he trusts entirely the great Ravens players in front of him to do their job. We go forward hard trusting God to keep his promises. And how do we go forward? We do good. Do good. Keep God's greatest commandments. Love God, love people. Do good. Don't buy into this weird modern take that what you're truly missing in life is self-care. Right? I'm not saying that you shouldn't care for your own needs. Like, you should probably rest well, and you should eat well, and you should take care of your physical self. But the number one, God, the number one way God says to gain life is to lose it. We find life when we get ours away. Pastor Sean, I think, said it really well last week. Our serving as we love others should be challenging. It should be inconvenient and difficult sometimes. And that's how we do good. We love God and we love others. And in our pain, we trust the one who is most worthy of trusting. We trust God.